0: Welcome to Here We Grow, a grassroots podcast
1: by Southwest Georgia Farm Credit focused on education and inspiring growth down on the farm, at home, and in rural communities. Whether you're a farmer or farm her, advocate, land lover, or southern dweller, we have industry experts and homegrown leaders ready to share their insights with you. Thanks for listening.
2: Welcome to Here We Grow, a podcast designed to educate and tell rural Georgia stories through farms, agribusiness, land ownership, and lifestyle. I'm your host, Brant Harrell, and I'm a relationship manager with Southwest Georgia Farm Credit. Today, I welcome a fantastic lineup of experts willing to share their knowledge on land, recreational property, and hunting opportunities in Southwest Georgia. This episode features commentary by Vince Barfield, Cole Barfield, and Brian Dean. First, I'd like to welcome Vince Barfield. Vince is the broker and owner of Barfield Auctions Incorporated and is licensed in five southeastern states Georgia, Alabama, Florida, South Carolina, and Mississippi. Vince is also a state registered real property appraiser in the state of Georgia. Vince, you've been involved in ag real estate for many years. Would you share your thoughts on the current real estate market? I certainly
3: would. First of all, I wanna I wanna thank you for the invitation. Uh, to join you here today, and before we get started, I just wanna I want to make sure that we give all the credit to our, our our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who without Him nothing of nothing that we've accomplished would be possible. Everything we have comes from Him directly, and uh, every accomplishment that we have reached uh, is through His grace. So, uh, yeah, just a little bit about us, uh, about our company. I guess our motto is get up every day, pray hard, work hard, do right, and look after your clients. Uh, Always put your clients first, uh, put their needs, their goals first, and uh, at the end of the day, everything will work out fine. I was originally licensed, uh, my real estate license, I obtained it in 1987, I believe it was. And then soon after that, um, got my uh, appraiser's license here in the state of Georgia and my auctioneer's license. And then my wife and I, as I said, we started this business um, in, out of a home office there in Shelman, Georgia. We expanded into Alabama, then Florida. In Mississippi, and then South Carolina. We have been extremely blessed to grow this business. Uh, it's a family-oriented business, and I've, you know, we, uh, we've had some very good individuals work with us in the past and, and presently also, and some of the best clients that we could ask for. We are a full-service uh, brokerage business. Uh, we have a forester on board. Uh, my son Cole is a, a broker with me now, an auctioneer. He also, um, as as we had stated, he is an attorney. So with all of that combined and the management company that we have put in place to work with the Georgia Alabama Land Trust as far as implementing perpetual easements, we've tried to put everything under one roof mm-hmm. that uh, possible needs that any client may have that we can serve. Uh, that was our goal, and, and we've been blessed to to put that type of organization together over the years. It's taken some time, but we've done it and been extremely blessed doing it. That is a, that is a brief overview of, of our company. Uh, as far as land in southwest Georgia, uh, we're sitting right in God's country. We're sitting right between uh, the climate's good here we are sitting between two major rivers being the the flint and the chattahoochee uh along with other numerous uh small creeks smaller creeks in the in this area that uh supply ample water sources both agricultural and both to, to the game that we have here we certainly have trophy managed uh game here plenty of turkeys uh you know dove fields and all of that um all of that comes from climate, the area, the water sources, the food sources, both natural, and if you look at the agriculture in southwest Georgia, uh, food sources are almost unlimited with peanuts, uh, cottonseed, soybeans, wheat, grains uh, that, that help uh, nourish and grow the wildlife, uh, along, of course, with, with the, the food that the good Lord supplied, such as the uh, The acorns and the other food, wild food sources, here. Like I said, we're just we're sitting in a in a great area. That being another reason being is um, just the the geographical area that we're in. People tend to really like Southwest Georgia. If you look at us on the map, we're just a few hours from the Gulf Coast. We're a few hours from the eastern coastline. Uh, the mountains of North Georgia, the Metro Atlanta area, uh, the 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 travels easy in and out of Southwest Georgia, with the good road systems that we have. We have uh, U.S. Highway 82, I-75 transportation, 27, and numerous other well-maintained, well-traveled road road systems. Also, we have access to many regional airports for travel in and out and that's a big plus uh for many of our clients that's one thing they uh, always ask us what about air travel how 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 hard is it to get in and out well we're close to atlanta we're sitting between tallahassee atlanta we're sitting uh not far from montgomery you have the albany airport and then in this area if you just look there's numerous county airports and regional airports that are well-maintained and easy for access in and out of our area. It's just, it's just been unbelievable to see the rise in land values here in southwest Georgia. And when people ask me about land investments and how do you get the most out of uh, what's your best investments out there, in my humble opinion, real estate, bar none, is the best. Why is that, Vince? Well, you can drill oil wells. The United States government prints money sometimes too freely. <laughs> you can mine gold, you can mine silver, and that can be minted. But you have to remember the good Lord is not making any more dirt. If you go to supply and demand, the supply is here. As I said, the good Lord's not making any more dirt. So, in my opinion, it's probably the best investment uh long term investment that you can have what
2: What about buyers when they come and, and talk to you? Have they changed their their thought process about what kind of what they're looking for in a tract of
3: land when they come see you well um some of our buyers are have researched it. some have a pretty good idea of the area they want to be in the the attributes of the type of property that they want and some just come in green let me say and you have to i call it a shopping list i'll sit down with them and we'll try to decide what type of budget they have what they not only want now but what they want three years down the road five years down the road ten years down the road if they have family members, if they want to have the ability to expand those land holdings. And we like to, we like to uh, take these people and, and work with them and cultivate that relationship and try to find the perfect track for them, Brant. A large number of these people are just, I know it's corny, but they're looking for Mayberry. They're looking for a simpler, quieter, uh, slower pace. And that's easy to understand. If you go spend three days in Miami or three days in Atlanta, they want that nature. They want that connection with nature. And I think that's a natural human need to get back to nature. So, you know, uh, you just have to deal with each client separately and and try to um, determine what their needs are, what their goals are, and try to help them reach those goals.
2: Are you seeing more people um, look towards sustainability from from land, being able to go there for extended periods of time and kind of grow vegetables, kind of live off of the land, if you will?
3: I I think we're seeing more and more of that. I think that demand is certainly there. As a good friend of mine, he he is a, a, a very good Merrill Lynch broker, just a good friend of mine. We've been friends for 30 years. And in one conversation, he called me and he said, Vince, I just called you. We just want to talk for a few minutes because the chatter is deafening. If you listen to everything that's going on in the world and you get caught up in it, you want to be able to connect with nature. You want that long-term uh, sustainability to be able to maintain that land and develop that land. I think it gives a, a, a certain amount of self-worth and a connection to the Lord and a connection to nature. You know, that's what I was getting back to uh, saying a few minutes ago to get back to what I was saying. You got to look at long-term goals. Where do you want to be in five years with this piece of property? Let me show you how to do it. whether it's uh, through planting long-leaf pines that, that uh, have the opportunity to uh, have income off of uh, pine straw, whether it's uh, matching the soil types to the genetics of the timber that you want to grow. Or if you want a, uh, you want to get into organic gardening, which is a, a very big trend now. Finding the right track that, with the correct soil types and the topography, that will allow for a certain amount of that. I, th- I think that demand is certainly there now. I sure do. I know you work on both sides of the
2: transaction. Um, it seems like. Like the old timey uh, wave your hand in the air auctions are they coming back now? We're seeing more more opportunities like that. It seems. They is that, are. Is that they,
3: true? They, they, that is true. Um, we have the capabilities to conduct online auctions, and that is the big trend now. We've seen that rise. I have never I have never conducted an online real estate auction, and here's the reason why: it's a trust issue with me. I've worked hard to maintain and grow my name, my reputation, and my trust with the public. And uh, this is just my opinion. But I like to have everybody in in one location, every potential buyer in one location. And when they leave my project or when they leave my auction tent, I want everybody to have 100% confidence that Vince treated them fairly, they had every opportunity to to bid and buy the product that they came to purchase. And I like, I guess I'm old-fashioned, but I like for everybody to see who they're bidding against. That just ensures that trust invents Vince, that everybody up in the tent, they know what the bid is I'm calling, and they know who they're bidding against. So basically, everybody's playing off a level playing field. That's just my opinion, but yes, we... Uh, I think we have five auctions, real estate auctions, booked presently. And
2: will all of those be live tent? Oh yes, okay. yes. I do know. I all knew of. you had several, and I. I was...
3: Yeah, we 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 have never conducted an online auction. It it may be, the trend. It may be, you know. It may be where this industry's going. But I I just like that personal contact. I like to, I like to shake somebody's hand, look them in the eye, and do business. I hear you.
2: That's a good way to go through life, isn't it? It is. It is. Appreciate that. I'm going to step over to Cole. Next up today, I'd like to welcome Cole Barfield. Cole is Vince's son, and he is an associate real estate broker with Barfield Auction, Inc. also. He's been in the real estate business for over 20 years. Cole also owns a solo law practice located in Cuthbert, Georgia, where he specializes in real property law and
0: estate matters. Welcome, Cole. Thank you, Brent. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, I, I'm. I've been a real estate broker for, like you said, for over 20 years now. Went to UGA for uh, to Terry Business School for undergrad. Went to John Marshall in Atlanta for my law uh, law schooling, and it just seemed seemed right. I worked I worked with Daddy all the way through law school, college, coming back on the weekends, helping with auctions and and on the real estate side, and then well, finally I got done with the bar exam. It just seemed right to come and put everything under one roof. Come home. Come back home. Come back, back home. I can tell by the way, your daddy's grinning. He was glad to see you too.
3: <laughs> I was. Very, don't tell him that, but I was. I was. I'm very proud of him. He's a great asset to our, to our, to our company and our firm. And it, it does my heart good to know that when, uh, when I'm gone, that this business will continue and this young man will grow it. That's the goal. That's
0: the goal to keep it growing uh, multiple generations. There you go. And both sides of it. I've got a couple coming behind me. Two of them are already talking about trying to follow in the same footsteps. We'll see what happens there. <laughs> well,
2: Cole, when, when um, a buyer or a seller contacts you, I guess mostly a buyer, when a buyer contacts you and um, they found a track of land to buy, kind of walk us through that process a little bit.
0: Well, uh, I mean, I do probably, Bran, I, I do probably two to I don't know. I probably average two hundred a year right now. Uh, the most I've ever done in one year was probably a little over three hundred transactions at one in, in one calendar year. But really, from start to finish, um, I mean, I, I've got I've got one lady that uh, does all my abstract work. She does a hundred percent of them. She's a retired clerk of court. I trust her immensely. Uh, so she does. I give her the contract or or just simple property information to get her going on. She provides me a report back, uh, which I then review, provide title policy or insurance at that point, And I prepare all documents from A to Z. I don't have a secretary paralegal, so I do everything but my title work. So that buyer would come
2: to you and, and, uh, perhaps get you to draw up a, or, um, prepare a sales contract for the
0: buyer and the seller if they don't have one yes i mean i do i do tramp i mean i specialize in transactional law real estate contracts estate work so that's yes if they do not have a contract i highly recommend one i draft a bunch of them for clients that don't a lot of times they're either i don't know something we've already sold i mean cuz i probably close i'm guessing somewhere 80% i've never really looked at it of properties that we sell Barfield Auction Sales, buyers have never had an – I don't push myself on that. A lot of times, you know, I'll actually suggest another attorney before, and then they ask, can you just do it? Well, yes, I can, but I never push myself on anybody. Uh, They always seem to keep it – like to keep it simple. I'm already well-informed on the whole transaction at that point. just seems to keep it a lot smoother. They seem to like it,
2: so – You've mentioned title work, and so for people that are looking at these transactions but don't quite understand every aspect of it, describe the difference between a title opinion and title insurance so that so the person will know
0: what to expect or what they were, what they were looking for. Well, a title certification uh, is just is we're essentially doing the same thing. I'm doing a minimum of 50-year title abstract work, and then I certify as attorney that the title's good which essentially is saying I'm guaranteeing this title. something ever was to pop up, a security deed that we missed or an error that was not included for some reason and we didn't catch it, ultimately it would fall back back on my E&O, my error and omission insurance. Title policy, I go through First American Title Company. There's a lot of several other really good ones out there. I've just dealt with them from day one. Um, I go through the Georgia Fund, so I'm a qualified uh, underwriter for them, I guess you would say. Essentially, it's another layer of protection or another set of eyes or multiple set of eyes is the way I have it set up, Brant. A lot of attorneys get a percentage of the premium. I don't. It's well worth it, in my opinion, just to get an extra set of eyes. The title company will essentially do the same thing. If I've had one in 13, 14 years now where we missed something. We're fixing it right now, but it was back in the fifties. It was a deed of assent done. I missed it. A previous attorney missed it that dealt with it before me. A bunch of estate work was done that kind of, I guess, led people to believe that, you know, think that it wasn't there, but it was misindexed essentially. But I did have title insurance on that or the owner did the buyer did. Uh, so first American is actually fixing that for him right now. Not me, but the title company is. Essentially doing a quiet title action is what they're doing, Brent, to fix it. But that is the difference. It's either, you know, a title, cert- a attorney certification is just me. I'm guaranteeing it. It's all going to fall back on my, you know, insurance ultimately anyway. Mm-hmm. Because once the title company fixes, they're going to turn around and say, hey, Cole, you missed this. You've got to fix it on our end now. So it all calls back on me anyway. Well, you, you brought
2: up an interesting point on a circle back to it for just a second. I, I think we've focused a good bit on auctions, but y'all also have a real estate listing side where where you're more into private transactions. Uh, is that the way you would describe that?
3: That's, that's correct. We're brokers. We're real estate brokers. Uh, so we can handle business. Um, we can handle private treaty listings, mm-hmm. and that is just the traditional method of listing and selling real estate and then also we can offer the option of a auction uh situation or is are just two different vehicles to try to get you to a goal of of...
0: well not every property is going to fit an auction right Uh, not every situation not every seller is going to fit an auction sometimes it's you know like uh when you look when we look at an auction setting uh on a, on a property, is is there, is there divisible? Is the property even divisible? Uh, you know, can it be divided to bring the price per acre up? Um, if it can't, then you know, there's really no need to do a division. You know, an auction. An auction is just a format, in my opinion. Uh, it, it, it's a way to get everybody at one location at one time. You can bust the property up in smaller tracks and essentially. Bring the price per acre up for your seller this is what I've seen a lot of times
3: on our auctions. That's correct. Uh, th- there's there's several advantages. In fact, we're working on an auction now where, uh, to be honest with you, it's, it's limited division on it. But uh, after, as Cole said, our goal is to protect our clients and their assets, and each situation is different. This client is in a situation where she has very desirable property. She has numerous individuals wanting the property. She was raised in the area, born and raised in the area. So she has friends, she has business relationships and she has family in the area and and they're all interested in the property. But when she turns it over to me and we go to an auction situation we set the time and the date and the terms and then what she really, the one reason she decided to to, to uh, go the auction route was that nobody can ever come back to her in 60 or 70 days and say, you did not give me an opportunity. That argument's out the window because it's been advertised and Everybody has the opportunity to step up and buy that property. That's an awesome point. Well, I mean, it just takes all the stress off. It takes the uh, if I'm working for a judge in the courts, it takes the same reasoning. It takes all the the liability, or it takes some of the liability and the pressure off of that court, because no one can ever come back. And say, I did not get a chance. You did not handle this correctly. I feel like I've been slighted because you should have given me the opportunity to buy it. Well we did. We advertised it for 45 days. We set the process up, and all you had to do was come bid. So that that's another advantage. That, that like I said, every situation's different, as, as Cole said. You try to tailor it to the client what's best for the client and that's one advantage our firm has we're we're so diverse we can offer many different options as far as marketing what i'll do is i'll look at it i'll see what that end goal is what time frame they they need that project accomplished in and then we make suggestions on marketing and and what might be the best method of marketing. We lay it out. We try to let our clients make that decision, whatever they're comfortable with.
2: And I guess we've talked a good bit about sellers, but y'all also work for the buyer. Is that right? I mean, a buyer can come to you and tell you exactly what they want or what they've got in mind. Certainly. And so you, is that about 50, 50 in between or,
3: uh, you know, I've never really considered what that percentage is, Brent, but, but probably so. I would yeah. say I have calls every day, yeah. sometimes multiple calls. Mr. Barfield, you don't know me, but I've been keeping up. We watch your website. Uh, we know what you, the volume you've been moving in the different areas. And um, this is what we're looking for. Can you help me locate this pro- property? And, and we can. And that goes back to determining the end goal of that client, whether it's a buyer or a seller.
2: Kind Of a custom search,
3: yeah, custom search. That's correct. That's correct.
2: Cole, I got one other question for you. Um, a lot of times, uh, as, as lenders, we'll work with uh 1031s, and and recently we've had an opportunity to to begin to talk uh about reverse 1031s, and that's a product that uh you're grinning and smiling. <laughs> I i
0: hear you uh what you're saying there. Just Te- uh. Des- describe the difference between the two. For us. I, I'll be honest, Bran, I've never I've never attempted uh, or even really looked at a reverse 1031. And I guess the reasoning for that is I've never even looked at the re- what it would require. I'm just being honest with you. And, and, and the reasoning for that is I was in a closing, I don't know, I was still, I was in law school or maybe had just got out and uh, Mr. Dunn Stapleton, who's probably one of the best real estate attorneys, maybe the best one I've ever dealt with was uh handling a transaction and he he well he was handling the closing we finished it and his his client his asked him he said uh asked him uh, about doing a reverse 1031 for him and Mr. Dunn Stapleton said I'll do I I'll never forget it he said I'm not going to say the buyer's name but he he said uh I'll do anything you ask me to do but that <laughs> uh he said I'm I'm not going to do one uh they're just not worth it and they're too I think Mr. Dunn pretty much insinuated they were too complicated to really even get into. I guess they're highly audited. So I've never really dealt with a reverse 1031. I do... I well, do, tell us about the regular 1031. I do, I do standard 1031s pretty regular. I've got two or three going on right now. Um, and essentially, I've got... There they were previous clients that we either sold something to or for. The ones I have going on right now uh, selling the I think most I think all three of them that I have going on right now they're selling something that we sold them 10 plus 15 years ago and reinvesting it and I've got one that's rolling the Georgia property into a coast property I've got one that's rolling it into a mountain property in Colorado right now Uh, but essentially what they do is you know they give me a contract I draft the QI agreement Uh, I do not do both. Uh, I'm not the QI in these transactions. I have a couple of describe, describe for those of us that are not familiar. Describe what a QI is. A QI is a qualified intermediary is what it stands for. And I, I deal with a couple of local bankers, uh, that, that are the QIs for me. And that is essentially the person that holds the money for the seller, the, the, the person implementing the 1031 because the seller or the 1031 ex- exchanger can never actually touch the money. When they sell the property, they assign the contract rights over to the QI. The money is wired to the QI's trust account. They hold the money for the the buyer or the exchanger will have 45 days to identify a new property or up to 3 in the, the easiest format, there's multiple formats, that, but most most commonly used is they identify up to three properties that they will use in the exchange and 180 days to close from the date of closing of the initial exchange property. They're, they're not that complicated to do. Honestly, it's just you've got to do everything precise. I mean, you've got to do everything on the time frames because the IRS, they will come back and audit a 1031 um i think we've had one or two done in the past 12 years 13 years i've been doing them pretty heavily i do about i don't know maybe 10 or 15 a year there's not a ton of them that turns over um, but it's starting to pick up a little bit more in the last couple of years first few years one to two a year the last i think last year i think we did 15 maybe maybe more
2: what would you say the cause of that is? Is that increasing values in real estate?
0: Yes. Uh, they've, they've, <clears throat> when they, Most of the ones that I've seen, they, their basis are so low in it, which I say their basis is what they paid for the property, what the value of the property was when they inherited or bought it. They no longer utilize that property or they want to invest in another section of the real estate market. Uh, essentially it's just got to be a light like kind exchange and it can be anywhere as light like kind can be anywhere from like an irrigated farm got one right now they're selling an irrigated farm and they're buying a beach house how is that light like kind exchange well it's investment property to investment property because they're going to rent out the beach house it's got to be so many months or so many weeks a year for it to qualify as investment property that would qualify for an exchange
2: Cole, who gets to make that decision? That, that it's like kind is that, uh, is that a CPA or is the qualified intermediary? It's, it's the or? qualified
0: intermediary. Okay. Um, and they would defend that in an audit,
2: as they, they right? would.
0: Okay. They would. We have uh, successfully, and that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we have. Um, like I said, I've I've used I I only use a handful of QIs. Uh, it's ones that I trust that know what they're doing, and we do look over the replacement properties. Because they have to give the QI uh, notice of what they intend to pursue, uh, and and we have rejected, like I say, we I, I not the QI, but I do all the legwork, I guess, for the QIs, all the paperwork, and we do, I had do have discussions with the QI on whether or not I feel that these are legitimate replacement properties. If we had a listener that was that was contemplating
2: a ten thirty one exchange. And they were about to enter into a sales contract. Would you advise them to give a few extra days to implement that, or can that process run simultaneously with the title work and appraisal and other things you can, that go together? If,
0: if they're if they are thinking of reinvesting in the, uh, the the funds from the sale, I would start looking immediately uh, because you only have forty five days from the date you close. So the date they close, they have 45 days to identify properties, up to three, typically. If they don't, they, they, they've got to pay the taxes at that point because there's not a 46-day at that. They can identify up to three or more uh, depending on which variation of the 1031 it's changed. And then they have 180 days from that date of closing to utilize those funds.
2: Okay. Are you limited to three? In this particular in in, in
0: 31 In the ones that we typically do, yes. Okay. You're limited to three. Uh, there is a, there's a couple other there's percentages like where you can identify uh, as many as you want. It's just got to be a certain percentage or you've got to use a certain percentage of the funds to, I mean, make it work. Yeah, uh, okay. So, I mean, I, I've done a couple of those, and they were years ago. Um, I'd have to even go back and refresh myself on what the – we tried. – I'll take that back. We we had one that was going to be done. It was a couple. They were selling a house up in Maryland, moving it into three or four other – they wanted to move it into multiple properties. Um, they were using the – I think it was the 210% approach or something like that They because – They didn't tell us this. They just said, we're doing a 1031. I told them three properties, went through the whole days for identification, closing. Great. Uh, We understand completely, Cole. Uh, When they sent me the identification list, there was 25 properties on it with all the percentages and everything like that. And so first, you know, of course, first I made a phone call. What are we doing? You know, we can only identify three. Well, no my cPA says we can do it this way you can let me refresh on this because this is a, something totally different than what i was anticipating and the q i mm-hmm. uh because they're a lot more complex long story short did the reviewed the statute and the they they were they ended up going back to the three three property rule because the cpa the the percentages were not adding up they ended up deterring from that avenue thank goodness <laughs> so well,
2: so let me ask you this and, and we'll move on for a minute but if a person was contemplating using a 1031 or looking at doing a 1031 would a conference call between the closing attorney the cpa and the q and i be something that you would recommend get everybody on the same page
0: i mean yes it's always good to talk to somebody uh, talk to everybody i normally don't do conference calls uh, essentially what i normally do is when i get Get out all the initial information, put it together. I just do an email. I mean, I, I tie everybody into one email uh, where everybody can reply. All everybody sees everything that's going on. So there's no lost in translation. I guess you would say. Yeah. It's easy to, for me to pick up a phone call and call Brant. Brant, this is what we're doing, and then the QI not know. Yeah. So that's why it's I like to. to yeah. I like I like to tie it all in with emails. That way. Nobody can ever say that they didn't know. I'm going to move on to, to Brian at this point.
2: And finally, I'd like to introduce Brian Dean. Brian is a sixth-generation farmer in Decatur County who grows cotton, field corn, soybeans, and peanuts. His operation spans over 4,000 acres. In 2013, he started bagging quality wholesale corn for deer and other wildlife purposes and selling them here locally in Maybe that, maybe that market has, has grown.
1: We're going to get Brian to tell us a little bit about it. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for having me, Brent. Yeah, it's grown a little bit. We, um, the first year in 2013, we were growing peas for Del Monte and Fresh Rosen Foods. And I said, well, let me put it in a little bag or two to bag some corn. And so I went out and I sold 700 bags the first year. Um, How'd you sell those, Brian? Tell
2: us, tell us how it got
1: started. It was in January, and I was like, "Who am I going to sell this corn to?" I thought people just buy it, you know, offhand, and they didn't. Um, <laughs> so I bought, you know, I went to Barber Fertilizer, and they bought about seven hundred bags the whole year. You know, I thought it stopped, and soon as deer season went out, but really people buy it year round. So the next year we rode around, we sold eight thousand bags the next year. Then the next year was sold eighty thousand, then one hundred sixty, and it just kept doubling every year since then. Mainly word of mouth. How big area do you, do you cover? Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. Okay,
2: okay. So you've moved on from the from the mom and pops and gotten out into some bigger box type stores. And
1: I go through different companies, and yeah. we put different brands and different bags and. Okay. They're they're in some big box stores, yes. Sir.
2: Okay, I wasn't aware of that. I'm
1: used to the to the yellow Brian Dean Farms. Yes, sir. bag. That's what we feed it feed at the house. We go <laughs> around and hit each other on the side every time you see a bag. It's kind of like soft shoulder. Okay. You, know? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, you, you, you mentioned uh, actually one of the questions I was going to ask you
2: was do you do you see a, a peak or a slack off time? I mean, I'm assuming getting ready for for hunting season people probably begin to feed but is it pretty steady i mean are people enjoying watching wildlife year-round now
1: oh yeah um you'd be surprised at the people that buy it just to have a feeder in the backyard and sit out there and drink coffee and watch the deer eat you know me i'm kind of one of those people because i don't always i'm growing feed and selling it so i don't have time to hunt so i'd just rather look at them you know (laughs) but um
2: and I guess every family can get wrapped around that. i got a I got a seven-year-old, and, and she loves to put corn out. We've got feeders and cameras, and, and so that's a big deal with us changing the batteries and checking them every week and all that kind oh, of yeah. stuff. So, Daddy's batteries dead. We've got to get back <laughs> over it. <here. laughs> In talking around and listening to some of your customers, has there been a best method of feeding corn to deer? Has that, that been identified?
1: You get a lot of people when it's opening day of deer season. They're going to go grab them a bag of corn and some coffee and pour it out, and they're going to kill a big buck. You know, other times you got people that feed it year round, or they feed it just during the winter time. You know, uh, during the winter time when there's not a lot of feed in the in the woods, you know, natural grasses and acorn stuff like that. A buck is going to use, say, a two hundred fifty pound buck. He's going to eat somewhere between seven and nine pounds of corn per day. A doe that's lactating or having or taking care of her fawn, she's going to eat four to five pounds of corn a day. And going back to the buck, instead of him eating seven to nine pounds of corn, he'd have to eat 30 to 35 pounds of green grass.
2: Wow, so that would would be almost... What, two thirds of a of a uh, Bermuda grass bale of hay that you see at the local feed store? there would be probably two thirds of that. Well it's gonna that. be
1: it's gonna be more like the green grass that's still got the moisture in it and that okay. kind of stuff. Okay, so good it, point. when you get down to the bale of hay it may be half of that, you know. I would still hate to eat that much green grass in a day. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean that's why you need good food plots, you need corn, you need a mixture of both, you know. I've had different people tell me that where they've limed their food plots, you want to get the pH 26 and six and a half. When you lime your food plot, they're seeing more deer on that side or in that food plot that was limed versus the one that wasn't. And what you're going to do by liming it is you're going to build the fertility in the ground where the plant can actually take up the nutrients. And so the plant's going to give off a bigger, more lush plant, and the deer's going to eat it first because it's soft and tender. You know, I guess in a perfect world, you're going to have the deer is going to eat fifteen pounds of green grass and five pounds of corn, and everybody's happy. You know,
2: without giving away a a trade secret, are you are you looking at increasing or changing or uh, increasing your line, maybe adding some more products to it? Is that something we can look forward to seeing
1: down the road? I'm probably going to try to put a protein in because that's an important fact when you're building. You know, at those times when the deer need it the most you know the bucks need to build a rack in may june july they need a protein they need up to a 16 percent protein you see a lot of feeds out there that's 20 24 but a deer a buck can only process 16 percent protein so it's like you've taken a multivitamin that 10 million vitamins in it or something and you only need 10 whatever the ratio is so so you can
2: overfeed them you for know. For comparison, if a deer eats corn what what percentage
1: of protein of that corn versus uh,
2: the 16 percent or the
1: corn's only like a eight percent protein um, on a lot of bags you're going to see it's going to say it's seven percent, six percent and it's in that range so everybody's usually puts a lower range of six but you can figure somewhere between a minimum of six and eight and maximum of eight. So you're not getting all the protein that they need to develop bones and racks and foams and that kind of stuff. So, if you supplement it, put a have a 16 percent protein feed, and a lot of people use pellets for that. Um, it turns into price points, but me personally, I like a roasted soybean to go along with the corn. It's better nutritional digestion.
2: It's a good deer attractant, to it.
1: It smells good. Yeah, it smells, smells really good. The customers like it, and the deer do. <laughs>
2: what you're doing is a little bit different. Now, you grew up in farming six generations. Yes. Uh, I, I know you. I know your granddad. He was he was quite a sport. He was a mess. I hey, Coach, how you doing today? <laughs> I always enjoy enjoy being around Mr. Douglas. But uh, I guess you, so. You've kind of taken this part, portion of your enterprise and just kind of moved it one step further, and uh, not just. I mean, tell me about that. How do you? Uh, that's different.
1: How? Did, well, I mean. I always thought about it. I was working with my uncle Bill, and he had a, a Freeman Mellon Company. It was started about the same time FNR, FRM was. You know, I thought back in the nineties, I was like, "Why ain't he bagging deer corn?" So later on, I always—it's been on my mind. So I just decided to try it. Give it a whirl. Yeah. It took me twenty years or fifteen years. So.
2: Y'all been open that long?
1: No, it took me that long to even try it. Do development. <laughs> so, Get the egg to hatch. Yeah. Okay. Good deal. You know, we were we were talking about land and a little bit of stocks, but owning land is something you can touch and feel. Amen. And when you buy a stock it can dissipate. You can buy Apple stock and it's probably forty times value. Forty times earnings. So if I earn a hundred dollars, you're gonna say I'm worth forty times that. But this land you can look at it and touch you can and feel. On it.
3: That's right. You can sleep on it. It's you solid. can eat off of it. It's solid. Yeah. And and, and you know um, if if you want a a, a true long term safe investment that will weather the ebbs and tides, mm-hmm. the trends in the market, which tre- every market will rise and fall. I don't care what market okay. it is. Any any market will rise and fall. But in my opinion, if you want a good, safe, long-term investment that you can pass on to your children and your grandchildren and, and future generations, you cannot beat land. Whether it's timber tracks, whether it's a recreation track, whether it's a, a, a rural home site, or whether it's um, uh, irrigated farmland that historically has been one of the, the, the soundest and strongest investments that you can find is irrigated farmland and and a good um, well-managed timber track you know the old adage the old saying that's in my opinion is still true and always will be true is wealth follows land land follows wealth you can you can invest in other things and and you can in some some cases, you can make a, a, a much stronger return, but those same investments can disappear. Mm-hmm. And you but that land will not disappear. Yeah, it's always there.
2: You know, Vince. Really, when you when you compare the two two markets, and I guess there's some other markets out there. Realistically, if you look back over about fifty years and compare them, both of them actually return about eight percent. That's correct. And so that's wrong. Um, you know once you find the track of land that you like, whether it be like you were talking about a, a, a crop, crop land, whether it be irrigated or dry or or a timber track, just kind of depending on what you and your family want, uh, you still got some return there and you've got the enjoyment. You do. Um, one of the greatest opportunities that we've got down here is our source of water and our permitting and it is our climate and soils to go along with that. And, um, you know, when we've had some of these auctions, um, just what what's the furthest that you've ever had a, had a had someone come to a real estate auction here in Georgia?
3: Oh man! Right around in here, just um. Well, we work five states, but if you're talking about just Southwest Georgia, um, what's the furthest interest that you've had? Well, we had one Cali- California. 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 Yeah, to say, California. Yeah. We've had buyers come to California and buy irrigated land from us. Yeah. Uh, because if you look at the water issues in California, it, it's like um. Uh, it's like the movie Forrest Gump. I don't mean to be uh, facetious about this, but he had the last boat floating, right? That's yeah. right. And if you look at everything that's going around in the world today, you see the solar farms going in, or they're cutting the water off in California. Even you, uh, we have six thousand acres for sale in Clewiston, Florida. And if you don't believe water's a big issue with South Florida water management come ride with me it, water is a big issue it's one of our greatest assets that we must protect but here in southwest georgia we're sitting in god's country this is the bread basket in my opinion we've got the soil we've got the climate we've got the water we that what else do you want that's it
2: let's touch on timber tracks and their appeal for just a minute we've got um Right here we've got several mills, you know, from um, uh, up north uh, in our northern territory up uh, uh, across the river there in the edge of Alabama down to um, Albany back down into the edge of Florida uh, over on the uh, Chattahoochee River down like you're going to Dothan there and Cedar Springs. Um, got several over in Thomasville, uh, uh, one up in Camilla, north of Camilla a little ways. So we we are scattered heavily down here with an appetite from the different sawmills for our timber. Um,
3: wouldn't you say that's probably one of the better markets in the United States? I, I certainly agree. And if you do not believe that general generational wealth cannot be created in the timber business, give me two days and get in a pickup truck with me and ride, and I'll introduce you some of my clients that are very quiet, very conservative, but they're as strong as, as uh, anywhere, anywhere you want to uh, look as far as, Wealth, mm-hmm. uh, timber wealth is a hidden wealth from the turpentine business on. It has created wealth. And, and that, as I said a few minutes ago, land follows wealth and wealth follows land. If you want to build wealth, invest in dirt, invest in land, invest in America, invest in southwest Georgia. Well, I heard you say you got some clients that's selling land and buying
1: condominiums. <clears throat> You don't really have to maintain that land very little, but that condominium and the beach—you're going to be painting it every three years. Mm-hmm. You're going to put a roof on it. You know, bare dirt is—that's the money. Yeah, well, that's and it's there. My,
3: my, that's my background. That's yeah. my family's background. That's my wife's background. That's my my son, my daughters—they are my grandkids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have grandkids that still are on the farm. Uh, some will stay in farms. Some will, you know, like Cole said, I, I have five grandkids, and they're all involved. I'm, they come and go to the auctions. They come to the office and work. They're, they're involved in the business. If you're asking Vince Barfield what is the best investment for Vince Barfield, it's land. Mm-hmm. It's either irrigated farmland, timberland, recreation tracks. Uh, it'll always be there. And as I said, the good Lord's not making any more. Oh, yeah. So when you get down to supply and demand, the s- demand's still rising. Mm-hmm. And the the, the the supply is what it is. Oh, yeah. it, it's it's there. That's it.
2: Let's talk about another aspect of, of owning uh, land down here in southwest Georgia. What about the prime hunting? And, and we're right here. You mentioned a while ago, Vince, that we're down here between several creeks, two rivers, Lake Seminole, Lake, Lake Taquan. We've got uh, just north of us, we've got some other reservoirs. Lake, Lake George, Lake Ge- Chattahoochee, you know. We've got we've got plenty of fishing. No matter what what you want to fish for, within a couple hours of here, you um, do. some awesome deer hunting. Uh, we have. I know I, I deal with several clients. A lot of clients have a lot of phone calls from potential customers and clients down in Florida wanting to come up. Uh, and basically, they're just wanting to they want to hunt bigger, better deer where they where the genetics have been improved and right and uh, and then they get here and they they get over into. Uh, and you know, maybe some, some quail, and then they, they fish around here too. And, and so right. we're, we're having people come in and just utilize our area year-round right here in southwest Georgia.
3: We we, we do. Uh, and, um, you know, the genetics are are tremendous through here if managed well. And, and you've seen management increase. Uh, you've seen landowners really start to realize what management is. And I think Mr. Dean will agree to that mm-hmm. with, with the food sources and and managing the genetics and letting the the deer grow to a mature age. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right. Uh, but but Lake George, Lake Seminole, the Flint River, Chattahoochee River, and all the creeks in between just make this a, a paradise. And you know when you add farm credit in to pick up and do the financing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know that that is a uh, that's a, a no lose situation. You can't go wrong there. You know, back in nineteen sixty
1: nine, Lamar Darley
2: mm-hmm. he
1: killed the uh, two hundred two non typical Boone and Crockett right here in Decatur County. That's right. He was the state record holder for twenty nine years, wow. and so from nineteen sixty nine until today, with the different feed policies that's gone on the plantations. It's getting better. It's getting better every day, and I and, think more people are attuned
2: to making that happen and and uh, increasing the management. I think it was maybe maybe driven by uh, some people and some some um, legislation, but but now I think everybody that's wanting to go to the woods and hunt mm-hmm. uh, wants wants better deer wants to do it in a better environment. Yeah, they do. So and we're, we're you
3: seeing,
1: got quail <clears throat> hunting, you got dove hunting, turkey hunting. Well, I mean. We
2: can
3: all agree that, that um, we live in a wonderful place. We and, do. Uh, and, and the turkey population has exploded since they have uh, mm-hmm. repopulated the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will say we farm, our family farms, and changing farm practices, we have seen a, a greater number of wild coveys, more wild coveys, in the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. My son's a, a big turkey hunter. My, my youngest daughter, my son, Cole. Uh, the grandkids all all hunt. Uh, my youngest daughter was on the cover of uh, GON, wasn't that correct? Colton? Several years back. Several years back, we have uh, uh, great genetics and great management. Whether it's, whether you want a fish, hunt, uh, deer hunt, turkey hunt, if you ever if you ever really get on a wild covey of quail you are hooked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're hooked. I, I I mean, it, it's over with. Then. Even if it's, you don't have a dog, you'll be walking around with a gun to scare them up yourself. You will. You, if <laughs> yeah. you, and they say that about turkey hunting, but I do know that if you ever get on a wild covey of quail here in beautiful southwest Georgia, you'll never want to go back where you where you, where you you came from. You, you'll want to stay right here. And like I said, go to Farm Credit, get your financing. You know, you can't beat that deal.
1: If you I ever appreciate. find a nice 500-acre uh, timber track that's Pristine quail hunting. I got it. (laughs) (laughs) Let me sum
2: it up by saying uh Southwest Georgia is your adventure, your legacy, and it all begins right here in Southwest Georgia. Guys, I appreciate y'all coming. This concludes our podcast today with Vince, Cole, and Brian. More information, please visit our website, swgafarmcredit.com Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app to get notified of new episodes. And Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for great industry resources. Thank you for listening, and I uh, look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you
1: all. Thank you. Bye-bye.